This is Reset. I'm Natalie Moore, in for Sasha Ann Simons. Norma McCorvey is better known by her pseudonym, Jane Roe. That's the Jane Roe from the landmark Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade. Journalist Joshua Prager spent 10 years researching her family and reveals much about her life and that of her forebears. McCorvey was once for abortion rights and then changed her position. In his new book, The Family Row, An American Story, Prager weaves together a story about the U.S. Supreme Court's most divisive case that legalized abortion in this country. And he joins us now. Joshua, welcome to Reset. Thanks so much for having me. Your interest in this subject started when you learned that the Roe baby was not aborted. But first, tell us about Norma McCorvey. So she was raised um, in a religious home in Texas, um, a broken home, unfortunately. Her, her mother, Mary, um, had, had actually been born to um, a woman who, like Norma, had had an unwanted pregnancy at 17. Norma was the third consecutive woman in her uh, third consecutive generation in her family to have an unwanted pregnancy. And Norma's mother was when when Norma's grandmother was pregnant, um, she was made to relinquish the child she gave birth to to her parents to raise and having to give up her child um, was a devastation to Norma's mother. She became an alcoholic and and then a Jehovah's Witness. And this was the home that Norma grew up in, where sex was something illicit, something forbidden, something sinful. Um, Norma's mother um, slept with many men other than her husband. And when Norma then came out to her parents as gay, she came out in high school, her mother beat her. Um, She told me that unapologetically. And so it was a sad and broken home And what defined it most of all was the sort of seeming irreconcilability of sex and religion. And this came to be a very important theme in Norma's life. You were very intentional about going back some generations to understand Norma. Why was it important for you to do that? Yeah, like I was just trying to explain, you know, there were three straight generations where unwanted pregnancies sort of Um, redirected these women's lives. And so I thought that if we want to understand Norma, um, we need to understand where she came from. And what was so fascinating to me is that Norma's family and Norma's life, um, they were windows to sort of the larger question of abortion in America. Because just as sex and religion seemed sort of incompatible in their family, so too, I think, um, does that incompatibility explain a lot of why abortion has become so fraught in this country. And um, Norma was 16 years old when she got married to a man. Um, They then quickly got divorced. She gave that child up for adoption. She, to her own mother, I should say, add, she later told people that her mother kidnapped the child from her, but that was nonsense. Norma was often reimagining herself, not as a sinner, in this case, a person who didn't wish to raise her own child, but as a victim. She then had another relationship um, that culminated in the birth of a child. She relinquished to adoption, and she was pregnant for the third time um, when she then became uh, Jane Roe, and that led to Roe v. Wade. 
I remember watching the NBC movie special with Holly Hunter in the late 1980s about oh, Norma. Wow. And last year I watched AKA Jane Rowe, the documentary in which there was a deathbed mm-hmm. confession. And I was reading, I was like, wow, um, Joshua's research refutes so much of what has been put out about Norma. Yeah. You know, Norma lied endlessly. And it's a difficult thing to write about someone who did. I mentioned just one example for she told people that her mother had kidnapped her child when, in fact, she had asked the ch- her mother to take the child off of her hands. Well, everything we, we knew, we thought we knew publicly, you know, that about Norma turned out not to be true. She had famously recanted one of her lies. She had said that she had gotten pregnant um, uh, with the the child that led to Rose through rape. That was not true, but it was everything else. She told she told people, for example, um, that she was raped when she was in um, Catholic school. But it turned out that that was a consensual um, affair that she'd had with a with a soon to be nun. She told people that um, when just before Roe, excuse me, just before she was pregnant with the pregnancy that led to Roe, she tried to go to an abortion clinic to have an abortion. And that when she got there, she found it had just been busted and there was dried blood on the floor. The truth was much sort of more mundane, which was that she simply couldn't afford the abortion. She found a clinic that was that was safe, but she couldn't afford the five hundred dollars that that was required. And similarly, you know, in the FX documentary that you mentioned, she told people about a deathbed confession that, you know, she just that she had been paid to switch sides from pro-choice to pro-life. That was nonsense. I had her taxes. I went through all of her payments with her. The truth was was simply that she was very angry at the pro-choice. She felt that they had marginalized her. And in fact, um, it's very timely today. It was her lawyer, Sarah Weddington, who angered her most of all, because Sarah did not tell Norma that she had worked in an abortion referral network, that she herself had had an abortion, and that hypothetically, she and her co-counsel, Linda Coffey, might have helped Norma to have an abortion too. This infuriated Norma when she found this out in 1992 when when Sarah Weddington wrote about it. And this led to her switching sides. Now, it's true that she knew on the pro-life side she'd be able to be paid for speeches that she gave on that side, just as she was paid for speeches on the pro-choice side. But she wasn't paid a cent to convert. That shocked me because that documentary just laid that out in such a different way. And um I trust your research because it was so exhaustive and I stayed up last night finishing that 500 page book, um, meticulous, (laughs) meticulous footnotes and and everything. Um, But one of your conclusions is that Norma's feelings about abortions really kind of matches how many Americans view abortions. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, obviously, if you are on the pro-choice side of things, You'd like the plaintiff who brings this case to be to be someone who feels sort of unequivocally that that abortion ought to be legal. You know, better to have a Gloria Steinem as your plaintiff. But Norma was not like that. Now, yes, on both sides, she sort of pledged allegiance to whatever people told her. But she did have an opinion, a genuine opinion that was all her own. A few days after Roe was decided in 1973, she spoke to a Baptist newsletter, her first ever um, interview. And she said, you know what? I feel that abortion ought to be legal through the first trimester. After that, she said, I worry that I would be killing a human life. 
She then said the exact same thing to Ted Koppel on Nightline after her conversion to the pro-life. Now, this infuriated her friends at Operation Rescue. She was supposed to say that she considered abortion murder from conception. But no, she said the truth, what she believed. And she said it to me again on, on literally her deathbed. I was with her at the end of her life, and she said this again. So that was what she believed. And what's fascinating is that, as you just correctly noted, that is what the majority of Americans believe. Even as both sides, the leaders on both sides and the movements on both sides have become sort of more extreme in their views and more polarized, the majority of Americans believe, and they have been consistent in this, that that abortion ought to be legal, but only roughly through the first trimester. And that was what Norma thought, too. Tell us about who used Norma and how at different points she felt marginalized. Yeah, it's a sad thing. I mean, Norma gave as good as she got. She can be tough and she sort of, you know, was canny in the way she sort of migrated amongst the different um, organizations on both sides of the issue. But she was used enormously um, right from the beginning. Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey, the lawyers who represented her in Roe, they needed desperately a plaintiff. It was hard to find someone who was going to say, yes, I had an abortion. Even though she had a pseudonym, they couldn't guarantee her anonymity. So that person had to be ready for any press that would come her way. And she had to be poor. She had to not be able to afford the, the cost, let's say, I mentioned earlier that $500 clinic, or to fly to California, where abortion was legal at that point through the 20th week of pregnancy. It was Governor Ronald Reagan who'd signed that law into being in 1967. Norma fit the bill. And so they... She was important for them. They needed her pregnant as opposed to not pregnant. And they could have, as I mentioned earlier, at least tried to help her have an abortion, to help her sort of go to one of the clinics in their abortion referral network, but they didn't do that. And that was very difficult for Norma. Then, as the years go by, and she decides that she wishes to sort of join the pro-choice movement in earnest, she wants to go to NOW rallies, you know, National Organization for Women. She wants to be um, present at, at, at protests, and she's, she's kept at arm's length. And the reason is she didn't speak the language, you know, of the pro-choice as the leaders would have wanted her to. Um, they are not even inviting her to their book parties, even though they're including, you know, for example, there's a book that Gloria Steinem um, uh, commissions to have written with different women's abortion stories. Norm is one of those stories, but she's not invited to celebrate the publication of the book. She's very upset by this. And as I mentioned, it's sort of Sarah Weddington's withholding the information that she worked in an abortion referral network that then leads Norma to the other side. And on that side, it was even worse. I mean, she was exploited ruthlessly um, by by first the evangelical minister, Flip Benham, then by um, the priest, Father Pavone, um, who, who, who ushers her into sort of the Catholic Church. And, you know, the way I put it in the book, she gave herself entirely to these two movements, her, her body, in a sense, to the pro-choice, her, her soul to the pro-life. And yet they weren't there for her, even at the very end, when she, she was really just living in poverty and needed help. They unfortunately were not there for her. It's a sad story, and it's a story that I think is often the case for plaintiffs of sort of historic cases. They are pawns. They, are, they help to sort of forward a movement, and then they are left behind. And she was a lesbian who really couldn't live her life out loud the way she wanted to. 
Yeah, that's that's probably the most depressing thing of all. There was one person in Norma's life, and really only one, who cared more for Norma McCorby than Jane Roe. And that was a lovely woman named Connie Gonzalez, who was her partner for 30 years. Norma, Norma was not faithful to her. Norma was a very combustible partner, but, but Connie stood by her. And when Norma became a born-again Christian and then pledged herself to the pro-life cause, Connie was, Norma was made by Flip Benham, the evangelical minister, to renounce her homosexuality. And she and Connie were made to sleep in separate rooms. It was a very sad story. And when I found Connie at the end of her life, um, Norma had just left her after she'd had a stroke. And she was so bitter. And what was so sad to me was that Norma was also bitter. She said to me, why did I let religion run my life? Why did I do this? She knew what she had in Connie, and yet she hadn't found it within herself to stand up to these leaders and say, no, I'm not going to leave my partner. I'm not going to renounce my homosexuality. And it goes back to her childhood. You know, again, she grew up in a home where sex and religion were seen as incompatible, that um, sex was something, as I said earlier, sort of sinful, all the more so if you were a lesbian. And so, you know, Norma's ambivalence about um, her sexuality and about abortion really had its roots in, in her childhood experience. This is Reset. I'm Natalie Moore in for Sasha Ann Simons. We're talking with journalist and author Joshua Prager about his new book, the Family Row, an American story. In it, he explores the life and family of Norma McCorvey, better known as Jane Roe, the plaintiff in the landmark 1973 Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade. The heart of this book is Baby Roe. Who is she? So what led me into the, this book, as you mentioned earlier, was the realization that Norma had not had an abortion. It's such a simple thought. You realize, oh, of course, a lawsuit takes longer than the gestation of a baby. But then when you think about it, wow, what a difficult thing to know that your conception led to the legalization of abortion. Now, I read that Norma had given that child up at birth. And I read that no one knew who this person was and that the pro-life looked at this unknown person as the sort of living incarnation of their arguments against abortion. Um, they referred to her as the Roe baby or as baby Roe. Um, I made sure when looking for her that I would not reach out to her in case she didn't know who she'd been born to. I didn't want to upend her life. I reached out first when I found her um, to the woman who raised her, to her mother. And her mother said that, yes, we know that, Norm, that, that Norma was, was my daughter Shelley Thornton's um, birth mother. They knew this because when Shelley was just 18 years old, the National Enquirer, the tabloid, came upon her in a parking lot near where she lived in Washington State. And they said, we're going to write about you whether you like it or not. A lawyer prevailed upon the tabloid not to include her name. But forevermore, Shelley felt like she was holding this enormous secret that if anyone discovered her, they would sort of, you know, forevermore camp outside her door. They would just look at her as a symbol. She wanted no part of that. Um, and that's a very difficult thing to have to carry for so many years. Shelley wanted, meanwhile, to find her sister. She wanted to know the other children who had been born to Norma and placed for adoption. And when I found those other women, I reached out to Shelley. Initially, Shelley had not wanted to speak. I said, I will never write about you against your wishes. Um, when I found her sisters, Shelley did wish to participate. 
And little by little, over the course of, as you mentioned, 10 years, she told me her story. Um, it's a very sad story. It's a story, of course, unique to her. Only her conception led to Roe. And yet, if you think about it, there are actually millions of children who are born unwanted. Um, and in that sense, Shelley's story of course, speaks to a much larger um, group of people than one might imagine. And um, it was very powerful. She found it within herself, even though Norma had wanted to abort her or, or abort the fetus she that later became Shelley, despite that. And despite even the fact that when the few times they never met, but the few times they spoke on the phone, they had miserable conversations. Shelley nonetheless found it within herself at the end of Norma's life, to feel for Norma, to understand that it was a very difficult thing to have your life defined by abortion. And though she didn't sort of find it within herself to travel to her bedside and speak to her before she died, she felt for her birth mother. And I think that that helped to bring Shelley um, a modicum of peace. Tell us about the other daughters Norma had and gave up for adoption and what their relationship with her was like. Well, all three children, Melissa, the eldest, Jennifer, the middle child, and Shelley, the youngest, sort of had different crosses to bear as a result of their having been born to Norma. The first, Melissa, though, as we said, she was sort of um, raised by Norma's mother, Mary, and not by her. She had Norma in her life, and that was a very destructive thing. Norma did not wish to be a mother, and she was not fit to be a mother. To give one sort of sad story, Melissa was just four years old when Norma traveled to see her with her then boyfriend, though Norma was gay, she did not describe herself as bisexual, she described herself as gay, she, she did have occasional boyfriends. Um, and she traveled with one of them to go see Melissa where she was living at that time in Louisiana. Um, Norma and her boyfriend got high and they locked uh, Melissa in a car all night um, while it was raining outside and, and the poor girl was terrified. So it was not an easy thing to be, to have Melissa, to have, excuse me, Norm in your life. The second child had no idea who her birth mother was and she struggled with drugs and alcohol. Just as it turned out, Norma had too. She was also gay. She is gay. And she wondered why. She said, I wonder if there's someone in my biological family who is gay. And so finding out that Norma was her mother um, for all of these reasons sort of helped to put the last pieces of a puzzle into place. Um, she described it as the happiest day of her life. Um, she wrote that on Facebook when I was able to connect her um, to that family. And Shelley, it was obviously a devastating thing for her to find out, you know, she's, she's, as I say, the National Enquirer comes upon her in this parking lot. Initially, she's thrilled. Oh, my birth mother, because the, the people at the Enquirer said that they'd been sent by her birth mother. She's thrilled. Oh, my birth mother is looking for me. That, in some senses, is the fantasy of any child who is relinquished to adoption. But then she finds out that really Norma just wants to sort of um, head off on the road with her as a sort of road show to be paid for talks that they can give. Norma had just was just now being represented by Gloria Allred, who obviously was a person who liked her her clients bold faced and and she was excited for the attention and this was very upsetting to Shelley. Um, so all three of them, it was difficult for them for different reasons to find out that they were born to Norma. We've talked about Sarah Weddington, who um, argued the Roe case. She died recently, was announced yesterday. 
Um, and yep. there are other key players you write about in the abortion, abortion movement. And I had no idea about Mildred Jefferson, a oh, black woman who in many ways was driven to the pro-life movement because of racism and sexism. Can you quickly tell us about Mildred Jefferson? Absolutely. Mildred Jefferson is looked at as one of the real patron saints of the pro-life movement. She was the first black woman to graduate Harvard Medical School. And then she sort of famously led, you know, the pro-life movement for many years after Roe. She's the head of the National Right to Life Committee. She's the one who brings Ronald Reagan to the fold. She's the one who more than anyone realizes this, that there's sort of political capital here um, in the abortion issue. But what they didn't know and what I bring to light is that it wasn't just conviction that led her to leave her career in medicine um, for abortion, but rather real racism and misogyny. Um, she was um, brilliant, you know, graduates Harvard Medical School, but she cannot get certified. And the reason for that is the American Board of Surgery had never certified a black woman um, um, when she graduates medical school in 1958. 51. They hadn't done it till 1968. And though Mildred completes three general surgery residencies, she is not um, certified until 1972, um, by which time she is completely exasperated and distraught. Even then, um, after she's certified, um, the chief of surgery at her hospital in Boston will not help her to build a practice. And so it's, it's this horrible prejudice that leaves, that forces Mildred to leave her medical career and join the fight against abortion. What do you make of where this country stands today with Roe and the increasing abortion re restrictions we're seeing on the courts and just really all over the country? Yeah, you know, I write a lot about how we came to this sort of sad, incredibly polarized point. It's fascinating to realize, I hadn't realized it, that it wasn't like that in the beginning. Um, the first Supreme Court justice who was nominated to the court after Roe, John Stevens, he's not even asked about Roe at his Senate confirmation hearing. Um, it was, of course, a 7-2 ruling. You had bipartisan support. It wasn't, in fact, a political issue. You had Republicans who were pro-choice, like Ronald Reagan, George Bush. You had Democrats who were pro-life, like um, Al Gore and Jesse Jackson, um, Dick Gephardt. So, but little by little, as the two sides sort of hunker down, and it has a lot to do with Mildred Jefferson. She politicizes this. She and her organization do so in 1976. It's the first time that, that um, either political party um, includes Roe in their political platform. So little by little, it becomes more and more polarized. Of course, now today, there is no sure indication of a political affiliation than where one stands on Roe. And you see these organizations like... Um, uh, American AUL, Americans United for Life, I think it's called, um, that have helped the pro-life. They've sort of provided a playbook as to how to bring about more um, uh, legislation um, that that circumscribes Roe and abortion access in this country. And it, it finally came to this point now that there's this 6-3 conservative majority on the court. That Joshua, Roe I could keep Jeffrey. talking to you, but we have to come out at 1 o'clock. Uh, thank you so much for being here. We've been talking with Joshua Prager, the author of the new book, The Family Roe. Thanks so much for being here.